Hi, I'm Talia Baroncelli, and you're watching the analysis.news. My guest today is Colonel Larry Wilkerson, who will be joining me to speak about U.S. involvement in the Middle East. If you'd like to support the work that we do, feel free to go to our website, theanalysis.news, and to make a donation via the red button at the top right corner of the screen. Also get onto our mailing list so that you're updated whenever there's new content, and like and subscribe to our channel on whichever platform you watch this show. See you in a bit with Larry. Following the gruesome atrocities committed by Hamas in Israel on October 7th, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has declared a war to root out Hamas in the Gaza Strip. The death toll has exceeded 1,400 people in Israel, most of whom were civilians, and over 8,000 civilians in Gaza, 40% of which were children. Israel has put a stranglehold on Gaza's access to water, food, electricity, and fuel, and according to the Palestinian Red Crescent Society, only 118 trucks have been allowed into Gaza via the Rafah crossing so far, due to the elaborate and time-consuming security checks conducted on the trucks. Following talks with the Biden administration, Israel has announced that it will allow 100 trucks a day into the enclave to alleviate the humanitarian crisis, though many aid organizations question whether this will be sufficient to address the dire needs of over 2 million Palestinians on the territory. This announcement came after the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees, UNRWA, insisted that the existing number of aid trucks entering Gaza was not enough to meet the enormous humanitarian needs of the population. International calls for a ceasefire were made abundantly clear in a recent UN General Assembly resolution calling for humanitarian truce, with 120 countries voting in favor and 14 countries vetoing the resolution. Netanyahu has rejected calls for a ceasefire or a pause in the bombardment of civilians until all the hostages have been released. The Israeli army has called up 360,000 reservists and has started its ground offensive on Gaza. The U.S. has also been increasing its presence in the region by sending additional missile and air defense systems, as well as 900 troops, largely in response to the killing of U.S. contractors and personnel in Syria by Iranian-backed groups. These developments point to a potential regional escalation and feared widening of the conflict, although Vice President Kamala Harris has stated that no combat troops will be sent to Israel or the occupied Palestinian territories. Joining me now is Larry Wilkerson. He's a retired colonel who worked in the U.S. Army for 31 years. He served as Chief of Staff to Secretary of State Colin Powell during the George W. Bush administration between 2002 and 2005, and also worked for Powell when Powell was Chairman to the Joint Chiefs of Staff during the Gulf War. So thank you very much for joining me again, Larry. Thank you for having me, Talia. Following the horrific attacks on October 7th by Hamas militants on Israel, in which over 1,400 civilians were killed, not only Israelis, but also people of other nationalities, such as Thai workers, uh, President Biden gave a speech in which he was speaking about 9-11 and how the Israelis should not be consumed by rage in their response to the Hamas attacks. He did say that the U.S. in the post-9-11 period sought to get justice and that they did get justice, but that they made mistakes. So I wanted to ask you about the post-9-11 response, because there was a report by Brown University in 2021 called The Costs of War. And in this report, it showed that the post-9-11 wars killed upwards of 900,000 people and the U.S. incurred over $8 trillion U.S. dollars in cost. So how was this response in any way, shape, or form considered to be getting justice? And why would Biden even make this comparison if the post-9-11 response was such a disaster? The only reason I can apply, uh, if, if, if I'm looking at motivations or rationales that Biden might have, is that he was part of it. He was right there. He was signing up to everything. The Congress indeed signed up to everything. They signed up to the National Intelligence Assessment in October 2002, which Colin Powell famously presented at the United Nations, and which was at least 70 to 80 percent false. Um, and he signed up to the Iraq Liberation Act, uh, which gave gave 
carte blanche, really, to the president to do whatever he wanted to before even the resolution that was issued after the Nipponet revolution that was issued after 9-11. It was a, a terrible time for the United States. It, it featured state-sanctioned torture for the first time in our colonial or national history. A president of the United States approved other human beings being tortured. Now, we had tortured people in previous conflicts, but we never had a president sign off on, as an official U.S. policy, torture. So it was a, just not putting aside the casualties for a moment, it was a terrible moment for the United States in terms of its own conduct and its behavior. Um, the costs are just out of this world enormous. I think, I know the Cost of War Project pretty well. I know the people who put it together pretty well. I think it's a bit uh, over the top, but I would say it's probably somewhere in the five to six trillion dollar range, and I don't want to quibble over trillions, but that's a huge amount of money. Think of the opportunity costs for that. Education, meeting the climate crisis, all the things we have to do in this country when we're in such debt. We're in so heavily right now that the interest payments on our debt, the interest payments, are going to consume all discretionary federal spending. That's incredible. That's the office of the budget telling us that. And yet we're still going down the road of spending money, $100 billion to Ukraine, $100 billion in this country or what country. But to your specific question, the rage that took over after 9-11 was visible in a way that even caused the evangelical George W. Bush to call in religious leaders to the Oval Office. Franklin Graham was amongst them, as I recall. Great getting advice from Franklin Graham. But he wanted them to help him contain his rage. Well, they didn't do all that good a job, is my, in my view, because we went to Afghanistan, at least, with a lot of rage in our heart. And our strategy and the way we uh, impacted Afghanistan and then subsequently Iraq was partly because of that rage. It was not strategic genius that was operating. It was, I got to stay in office. I don't want to be impeached. So I have to show the American people that I'm going to do something about this worse than Pearl Harbor tragedy that happened. Pearl Harbor was around 2,400. I think 9-11 now is roughly around 3,000. Not that that's a way to compare it, but it was significant. It was a blow to the president. There were people who were scared they were going to be impeached for the first 24 hours. And the way you deal with that, the way Netanyahu is dealing with it right now, is you're fierce. You know, you're fierce. You start pointing finger at all the people who are guilty besides you, and you're the guilty party. And you start doing things like slaughtering people in Gaza that make your people think that you're responding in the way that you should. Um, that's not unlike what we did after 9-11. So I, I think we were a little bit more circumspect about it politically because we didn't have someone... Even with the innocent, inexperienced George W. Bush, we didn't have someone who was not fairly well advised by his cabinet to not be like Netanyahu's being right now, just flat-ass brutal. Brutal. I mean, Netanyahu, if, if, if we were to be in the conversations Netanyahu is having, particularly not the unity government, but the members of his former Nazi government, if we were in those conversations, we'd probably hear some of the most beastly talk we'd ever want to hear. We got to exterminate. We, we must exterminate. This was an intelligence failure because of three things. If it wasn't contrived, heard enough evidence that the whole thing might have been contrived. I'm not buying that yet. I'm buying that it was a massive intelligence failure. Arrogance, hubris and arrogance, no imagination. You can't think what your enemy's enemy might do to you. And third, which follows from the second, they're subhuman. They're not up to you. They're not anywhere near you. So they can't do this because you're too good and they're too bad. Um, that's what happened. In essence, that's what happened to the United States of America, too. Bin Laden was smarter than we, we were. Ken, uh, Khalid Shah, Sheikh Mohammed was smarter than we were. In many respects, they've gotten what they wanted. Bin Laden's gotten what he wanted. The United States has bled its treasury 
massively bled its treasury. The amount of money we spent on the so-called global war on terror to include Afghanistan and Iraq. We've massively disturbed the body politic, if you will. The domestic sanity of the nation is fractured right now. That's what produced Donald Trump. We have done exactly what bin Laden said in that 98-99 fatwa. We have caused ourselves to begin to fall apart, and that's what he wanted to do. That's what he conducted the attacks on the Holocaust. Board. Fast forward. What is Israel doing now with its current lack of a real strategy, but a bunch of tactics to blow people up, kill people, slaughter people, kill innocent civilians, and so forth? What has he done? He sealed Israel's doom in my mind. He sealed Israel's doom. I said two years ago Israel would not be a state in 20 years. Boy, have I been taken to task for that. Rick Scott, the minority member of Elizabeth Warren's personnel subcommittee in the SASC, I'm testifying on the revolving door, how we need to stop the revolving door where generals go out and leave and work for Lockheed Martin or Raytheon. What does Rick Scott spend five minutes doing in his opening remarks, the minority member of the minority uh, leader of that subcommittee? He excoriates me for saying Israel won't be a state in 20 years. I'm sorry, Rick. How do you feel now? Things are not looking good. This state is going to be a pariah of the international community of the entire world, if not the enemy of three-fourths of the world. But does that bother Bibi Netanyahu? Not at all, because he said it doesn't. He said he didn't care if everybody in the world is Israel. As long as he's got the United States, which he controls, those are his words, and he's got Israel. So he's not worried about it. Well, I've got news for him. I don't care who you are or what you are. The rest of the world will get rid of you if they detest you sufficiently. And they are getting to the point, and even American Jews are getting to the point, where they detest Netanyahu sufficiently to get rid of him. And the next step, unless Israel fixes this, is the state of Israel. Well, there have been a lot of polls recently on, you know, Israelis' opinions to or responses to what Netanyahu has been doing in Gaza with, you know, the bombardment of Gaza, cutting off electricity, cutting off fuel, the supply of water and food. And it seems like his approval ratings are actually quite low, both among Jewish Israelis and Arab Israelis. But from what I've heard by other scholars and and journalists in Israel, it does seem like a large segment of the population still supports this targeting of Gaza because they, they don't foresee any sort of future peace being possible at all. And... In light of this sentiment, I do want to speak about a report which was leaked recently um, to the press. It's a report by an independent government body, an an intelligence ministry in Israel. And so this specific report isn't something that's binding on the Israeli government. But the report did outline certain day after strategies for Um, the Israeli government in terms of what they could do after the war with Hamas would be over. And one of the options they were discussing was depopulating Gaza and pushing the Palestinians into the Sinai Peninsula. And the way they wrote this report was that the international community would actually praise this move and see it as, you know, an, an effort to protect the Palestinians. So what do you think the options are right now that are being discussed by Netanyahu and his um, unity government? I mean, it doesn't seem like they're openly discussing this option, but do you think they would actually consider this option of permanently ethnically cleansing and depopulating the Gaza Strip? I think Mayor Ben Shabbat, former national security advisor for Netanyahu, had his hand in this. And... Knowing that particular individual and knowing what the smaller kind of think tank-like apparatus that put this together, the Ministry of Intelligence, whatever they call themselves, um, I think it's out of the out of the realm of the possible, and it's probably been judged so by Netanyahu even, but particularly the unity government. Um, I do think that it was 
parleyed. I think it was discussed. I think that was something that was on the table, very much so, particularly with the extreme right wing. You know, the government in Jerusalem is a theocracy. The government in Tehran is a theocracy, and we hate it because it's a theocracy, but it's a Muslim theocracy. The one in Jerusalem is a Jewish theocracy, but it's a theocracy nonetheless. And as we were shaping things up under Netanyahu with Ben Gavir and the rest of them conducting pogroms in the West Bank and killing Palestinians and dispossessing them every day of the week, we saw how bad that was, but we, you know, we don't say anything about that because this is a Jewish theocracy. We won't even use the word theocracy. They backed away from that now because they realize, I think, that's part of the reason that they got what they got on October the 7th. That and the fact that the United States, and I have to believe that as ill-equipped for any kind of real diplomacy as Blinken and Biden are, I have to believe that in this, this situation they have laid the law down to a certain extent behind, behind the scenes, so to speak, and said, no, you're not doing this. Do you know what El Sisi has told us he will do? He has told us that he will abrogate the peace treaty and he will start to move forces into the Sinai to keep you from doing what you want to do and you're going to come in contact with the Egyptian regular army. And Jordan has told us the same thing. You know how many Palestinians are already in Jordan? There are more there than there are Bedouins by a factor of four or five to one. This is not tenable. You cannot do this. Plus, Sissy's got all the Sudanese who've come up out of a real tragic situation down in East Africa. This is untenable. It, it, it simply can't happen. Now, the extermination of many of the two-plus million Palestinians, as Gidon Levy has pointed out, is certainly on the minds of many Israelis, not just in the government. Um, I participate in something every other week called the Israel-Palestinian Confederation, been doing it for two years. We discuss with Knesset members, with scholars from Israel, scholars from the U.S., scholars from Europe, and so forth. We discussed putting a government over both, was three, Hamas, PA, and Israel, a federal government over them, and giving each one of the subsidiary governments veto power over our legislation, so purpose to, be, to bring peace in two states. We have some people on that simulation that you just wouldn't believe. Well, there are a lot of those people in Israel, too many as a matter of and too many of them adhere to Ben uh, to Ben Gavir and other people's like that's philosophy. The only good Palestinian is a dead Palestinian. That's their philosophy. So there are other options for exterminating the Palestinians, one of which is being executed right now by the IDF. Um, and it's going to be incumbent upon the international community to not let that happen. Um, they've killed UN workers, especially the relief agency. They've killed, I forgot, but Numbers are growing every day, number of you work. Yeah. And and the number of children they're killing. Um, and these UN figures, I think, are fairly accurate. People, the Israelis say all oh, those figures are well, exaggerated. I think the UN figures are getting pretty accurate, and they're shocking enough. Um, so we've got to watch this carefully, and the United States has got to put its foot down and step in there in case it gets out of hand. Um, Israel's thinking, what do I do afterwards? Because it's, they have no strategy. They have no strategy. I see, I detect, no, I don't see an iota of strategy. All I see is tactics. And the tactics are the same that they've been since Israel was formed. Let's just mow the lawn a little bit. And, of course, they're saying, no, this time, this time it isn't going to happen again. We're going to push them all out. You're not going to do that. You're not going to push them all out. So what are you going to do? Who's going to govern them? What's the government going to look like? Oh, well, let's get rid of that curmudgeon. I don't know what to call him, Mahmoud Abbas. He is way beyond his uh, sell-by date. Need to get rid of him. Need to get somebody in the Palestinian Authority. They had some people in there, but Mahmoud Abbas got rid of them. We need someone in there who can actually form and execute a government. And we need to put that in charge, probably, of the two million or whatever left, Palestinians in Gaza. And we need to start talking seriously, seriously, about a two-state solution, not this palaver that we've had for 40 years, 
And that two-state solution now is probably going to have to have a U.N. force in between the one state and the other. And they're going to have to shoot people, maybe, from their position in the demarcation zone to make a point that Israelis, you stay on your side of the line in your state, and you Palestinians stay on your side of the line in your state. And there will be no terrorism across the line by either side because the, 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 the Israelis are just as apt to do it as Palestinians. We forget about the Israelis who were some of the most horrific terrorists in the world against the British in the 40s when the British were giving up their mandate in Palestine. The worst terrorists in the world were the Israelis. So we need a two-state solution. We need a peacekeeping force in the middle, a peace enforcement, chapter 6, chapter 7, a peace enforcement force in between them, and maybe for 75 years as in Cyprus, as in Kashmir, as in the Korean Peninsula. We need that. We need a two-state solution. Your one-state solution where it's a single state that's democratic and not Jewish, I think, has gone by the wayside. We were getting ready to go, the IPC that I just told you about. We were going to Tel Aviv. We got permission. Spent $30,000 on a sign, big sign, billboard. We were going to put that up. It says, a Jewish state is not good for Jews. And we were going to preach from that side, literally. And it's it, it's off now. I think they're going to postpone it, maybe do it later. But that's the truth. A Jewish state is not good for Jews. It's not a democracy. It's a theocracy. And a theocracy manned by people like Ben Gavir and such, it's not going to last. It'll be a pariah. It'll be gone. I said two years ago, Israel will not be a state in 20 years. I stand by that. Rick Scott notwithstanding, all the people notwithstanding, I stand by that. And not to let the Democrats out, when it came, Tim Kaine, my Virginia senator's time to question me, he opened up with three minutes of diatribe against me for not loving Israel. That's how badly we are in the hand of Jerusalem. Well, I do hope that doesn't happen, as it would inevitably lead to more deaths, both on the Palestinian side, on the Israeli side. It would kill any prospect of uh, a peace process, and most likely Arab states would also enter into a wider regional conflict. But I did want to get your response to something Netanyahu said the other day. Israeli journalists were asking him to respond to international calls for a, pe- for a ceasefire, and he said, just as the United States would not agree to a ceasefire after the bombing of Pearl Harbor or after the terrorist attack of 9-11, Israel will not agree to a cessation of hostilities with Hamas after the horrific attacks of October 7th. Calls for a ceasefire are calls for Israel to surrender to Hamas, to surrender to terrorism, to surrender to barbarism. That will not happen. Ladies and gentlemen, the Bible says that there is a time for peace and a time for war. This is a time for war, a war for common future. Today we draw a line between the forces of civilization and the forces of barbarism. It is a time for everyone to decide where they stand. So he's using this biblical language to justify his decisions on launching a bombardment of Gaza and potentially avoiding any reflection on his own responsibility in what happened on October 7th, given that he allegedly received intel from the Egyptians that some sort of attack would take place and he didn't react accordingly. And since then, the U.S. has sent in Lieutenant General James Glynn, who has urban warfare experience in places like Iraq. So it seems like they're trying to potentially use urban warfare tactics in Gaza. And this, you know, according to other anti-terror experts, seems to be a bit unwise, given that in places like Mosul, where there was urban warfare, for every ISIS soldier or ISIS uh, terrorist who was killed, an Iraqi soldier was also killed and numerous civilians were killed. So how do you see this strategy working at all in Gaza? You got me. I see nothing but failure here, strategic failure in particular. Um, Your remarks about Netanyahu's remarks remind me of the man who's third in succession for the presidency of the United States right now, who believes, the new Speaker of the House, who believes that Noah had dinosaurs on his ark, who has commercial interest in two museums and educational facilities in Kentucky and Tennessee to which yellow school buses pull up every day with middle schoolers and elementary school kids in them and go in and learn creation theory. Netanyahu can spout 
the Bible all he wants to. He's putting himself in the same category as the Speaker of the U.S. House and wars. He's putting himself in the category of the man who blew the trumpets and the walls fell down. He's putting himself in the category of other people from Israel who in early times felt like killing their enemies was the only option. If you're in a world basically run by the empire of Rome or whatever time period you're talking about, maybe that had a little bit of relevance and maybe the people who put the Bible together, maybe they were writing from a position of uh, a Homeric position, if you will, a Virgil position of recording myths and such. Because that's what the Bible is. It's full of myths. Myths. For example, this business that my friends sometimes cite a tooth for a tooth and an eye for an eye. That leaves the world toothless and blind. That's an absurd philosophy, but it catches headlines. The Bible basically is a freaking myth. It's a myth just like America is a myth, just like Russia's a myth, and it has about as much relevance to anything as myths do in that situation. Yeah, okay. We were people who said the only good Indian is a dead Indian. How do you fast forward that into the 21st century and say a very apposite aphorism? You know, Sheridan was right. Sherman was right. The only good Indian is a dead Indian. That's what Netanyahu is saying. That's using the absolutely most evil aspects of your myth to inform current modern policy. It's stupid. Netanyahu is an idiot when you really boil it down to its bare facts. He needs to be gone. The Israelis need to get rid of him. They, the unity government does not need Bibi Netanyahu. It needs him gone, maybe behind bars. I'd love to see him behind bars. That's the first step they should have taken. Get rid of that guy, put him in jail, and form a new government, whatever it might be called, however it's elected eventually. And then go after your strategy. There's no strategy right now. There's no strategy. There's only tactics on the ground. Because of the things you've pointed out and that I've inexpertly enumerated, this tactic that they have of exterminating as many people as they possibly can and doing it as rapidly as they possibly can and taking Hamas into account in that process is not going to result in anything but the same thing that was happening before. And you know, anyone who couldn't, seven months out, nine months out, my whole uh, discussion group was saying this. Look at what Gideon Levy said was two million Palestinians in an open-air concentration camp and think there wasn't going to be another intifada, that there wasn't going to be a reaction from the other side. It was just nuts, and we got it. We got it. Now, they were caught out. They were caught out with their pants down. And, and, and Mossad and IDF and Shen Bed and everybody else, Netanyahu in particular, were made to look the fool. And that makes their rage even deeper and their passion to fix things even deeper. But they're not going to fix things with the tactics they're using right now with no strategy. No strategy. There isn't going to be anybody to rule but Palestinians. And there isn't going to be anybody to rule the Palestinians in Gaza unless the Palestinian Authority is refurbished or something like it. Uh, you don't want Hamas running it. You just you, you just don't. That, they had a lot to do with that, too, you know. Netanyahu was actually influential in those 2006 elections in getting Hamas elected. Netanyahu has been working with the emir, the double-faced emir down there in Qatar, who's a Muslim Brotherhood supporter, who sends money to the Palestinians for humanitarian purposes and also funds Hamas. This is the guy who hosted the Taliban, remember? This is the guy that Taliban felt comfortable with having talks with the United States. This is a convoluted story that Americans don't pay any attention to. Nobody pays any attention to. And everybody gets away with their crimes. Well, I'm sorry. The crimes are going to stop here. And Israel's going to be lucky to be a state in 20 years. Well, why don't we elaborate on Qatar's role in all of this, because my understanding is that they've helped with the release of four hostages. Americans. And four, right. I think two Americans and two other yeah. Israeli hostages. The first two were Americans. you got to get right. your priorities right. 
I'll just say what Colin Powell used to say about Prince Bandar. Prince Bandar, the guy who was ambassador of the United States for 10 or so years and then slick as heck, bribed Tony Blair with a $5 billion bribe and said, well, I have money. Why shouldn't I? Um, Bandar said one time, here's how to assess, and Powell used this metaphor with the president after president. The Arabs are like this, particularly the Saudis. They watch a horse race. And the horse is pulling out about the midpoint in the race. And so they put all their money on that horse. Then about three quarters through the stretch, the the horse starts to fall back and another horse comes up even with you or maybe ahead ahead of him. They shift all their money to that horse. Then by the time they get to the finish line, there's a horse that's just about to beat everybody. It looks like it's going to be the winner. They shift all their money to that horse. That's the Saudis. They don't have any fealty to anyone. To a certain extent, the other emirs and kings are the same way. And Qatar was remembered, boycotted by Saudi Arabia because of its very flagrant support of the Muslim Brotherhood. You know how we turn that around for Qatar? Al-Udid is the largest Air Force base on the face of the planet. It is fully funded by Qatar. We don't have to pay for fuel. We don't have to pay for taxi rights or anything. Fully funded by Qatar. When we were going to side with Riyadh on the boycott of these terrorists backing emirs in Qatar, the Pentagon weighed in. And the Pentagon said, oh, no, no, we can't lose that base. We can't lose Al-Udid. We have to have Al-Udid. Oh, increase our budget tenfold. They pay for everything. Ah, we backed off. We backed off and stood up against Riyadh and supported Qatar and got them back into the community of Arab nations, as it were. They're still supporters of the Muslim Brotherhood. They're still supporters of the most venomous terrorists on the face of the earth. Where did the Muslim Brotherhood come from? I ask you that question, too. Where did they come from? They came from Erdogan's territory. What's happening there? What's happening with Turkey? Why is Erdogan looking like he's a kingmaker now, or at least a queenmaker? Why is he picking up all these pieces and suddenly changing this and changing that? Why did he say the other day when they asked him if he still wanted to be a member of the EU? I would have said the same thing. Are you kidding me? This is crazy. This is crazy. He's trying to, he, he's trying to decide what he wants to be now. Tell me NATO isn't collapsing, which I've said in a number of places. He's a principal NATO member. He anchors the southern flank of NATO. He's not a NATO member. He's just there ostensibly. We got troops in Turkey. We got a base at Insur. Um, someone told me the other day we still have nuclear weapons at Insur. I don't know that, but I wouldn't doubt it. Um, and Erdogan's trying to figure out if he wants to be neutral and the leader of the Muslim world, and there he's in contest with Mohammed bin Salman. Or does he want to be aligned with Russia and China, rapidly becoming the axis to be aligned with? Or does he want to still be a member of NATO? John Mearsheimer was in Australia. He was telling the Australians, look, look at this. Look at the United States right now. Here we are in the eastern Mediterranean with one carrier or another one steaming flight speed to get there. And we're funding Ukraine to the point of, you know, desperation in terms of our budget. Um, the Republicans are at least finally taking some action about that. Not the right reasons, but they are physical reasons. Where's the real threat? The real threat is China. We've pivoted, but we haven't pivoted. We've pivoted, but we haven't pivoted. We've pivoted again, but we haven't pivoted. We're in the Eastern Mediterranean. We're backing Ukraine. The, the threat's over there. Guess what's happening with the other side of the Ukraine war? It's in an axis with Beijing. Guess what Beijing may do with Putin and probably has already had the agreement use plutonium from Russia to build out his nuclear weapons complex faster than he would have been able to with what he has right now. Because this is good stuff to build your nuclear weapons with. Um, is he going to go from two to 400 weapons to two to 3,000 weapons? Probably they've made that decision, I think. What are we doing in the Eastern Mediterranean backing Ukraine, when if there is a true threat to the Republic, it is in East Asia. It is in the country that is going to rapidly replace us, already has, in terms of purchasing parity, 
economically, strategically, militarily, maybe has already replaced us in several of those categories. What are we doing in the Eastern Mediterranean? And with this pipsqueak Israel, what are we doing? This is absurd. John's right. I don't agree with him that the war with China is inevitable. I think good diplomacy and some frank talk could prevent the war. But I don't know that. And there is this tendency that history gives us of a rising power and a status quo power whose power is declining, fighting, inevitably fighting. John thinks they're going to fight. But I would want to keep my powder dry, and I would want to be ready to fight them if I had to. We are not ready to fight Burma, Myanmar. We couldn't fight them now. Uh, We're in terrible shape. We talked about this before the show. The all-volunteer force is falling apart. Our army is smaller than the army of Bangladesh. We can't recruit. We can't do the things we need to do to put people into the army. Why is the propensity of 18 to 24-year-olds 9%? Lowest it's ever been. Why? Stupid wars, stupid wars, stupid wars, which haven't stopped. We're still in Syria, illegally. The vested head of that state has not asked us to be there, so we're there illegally. We're still fighting the global war on terror. We're still militarizing Africa to the tune of coup after coup. We're a disaster, value. We are a disaster. And it seems like the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, is really gung-ho about increasing the military presence in the Middle East. I mean... Whose decision is Good it luck. in the end? I mean, where are the centers of this decision-making power? Does it rest with the president in this case? Or would you see this coming from people like Jake Sullivan, who recently wrote this really long, kind of annoying article in Foreign Affairs in which he was talking about how we need to, how the U.S. needs to keep these alliances, especially after President Trump destroyed a lot of those transnational alliances and also invest in competition, allegedly competition with China? Well, as far as the most important alliance the United States was a member of, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, it was doomed anyway. But with Putin's Russian invasion of Ukraine and with Biden, Blinken, nod, nudge is what I call that group, it's been sped up incredibly. I think NATO is done. I think it's toast. I think Erdogan's just the first flank to desert. I think we orchestrated very carefully. I know I was there when we started this. Governments in places like Finland, Norway, Sweden, that would be amenable to entering NATO. One Norwegian said to me the other day, a journalist, Larry, we've been neutral since time immemorial. Why did we do this? I said, well, check out your government because your government might not necessarily reflect more than about 45% of your people. Um, We engineered the Secretary General of NATO, Stoltenberg, Jen Stoltenberg. We engineered Guterres at the UN. We had a much better candidate in Helen Clark. She was a tremendous candidate for the Secretary General. We didn't want her to be it because we knew she'd continue the cleanup she'd done of the corruption and she wouldn't necessarily agree with us all. I'm happy to see Guterres finally grew a set and said some things the other day about the conflict in the Middle East, got himself in trouble with people, but nonetheless, that's what he should be doing. And we orchestrated all of this, and what we did was to reestablish American hegemony over Western Europe. We failed. The Germans are going to leave us. The Turks are going to leave us. Other countries are going to peel off. France will peel off. I, I, I've said, I believe that within a decade, NATO will be gone. It'll be dissolved, and it'll be our fault largely for doing it and not picking up on the fact that it was happening and crafting it in a way that was a little more conducive to both Western Europe's and our interests. It's time Europe grew up. It's time they had their own security identity. It's time to disestablish this monster called NATO. Bill Clinton made it a monster. I mean, we now have countries in NATO that couldn't pass the democracy test alone, let alone the corruption test that was required before to be a member of NATO or a member of the EU. We just took anybody. We took Montenegro, the stolen automobile capital of the world. It's a disaster. It's a disaster. It's hard to see what Germany's 
future role will be, though, because, you know, there is this change in policy, what's called the site and venda, where they are changing a lot of longstanding policies, you know, investing more in the military, which is not something that the German government has been doing over the past few decades, but they've, you know, following the the war on Ukraine, um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, they have changed that policy. So I almost wonder if Germany will emerge as NATO's clearest backer in the future. But I mean, that's maybe just speculation. From what I'm hearing from the Bundestag and from others, and people say, well, those are leftists. And I say, ooh, they're second in the voting uh, count now. A lot of them are East Germans, former communists. But the number two party in in vote count in Germany now is the uh, alternative to whatever it is. I forget the name in German. They're not leftists, though. They're right-wingers. Well, they're right-wingers only to an extent. They're not right-wingers in the sense of NATO. They're right-wingers in the sense of Germany. And that, that in itself is frightening in a, if you think of it in historical terms. I don't think of it that way. I, I think it's been 75-plus years since World War II. Japan has grown up largely. Japan is contemplating being a fully-up nuclear weapon state right now. I'm not sure I'm in favor of that, but if that's what the Japanese people vote for, that's what they're going to do. They are a responsible, democratic country. So is Germany. Germany needs to grow up, too. We have mollycoddled them. We have kept them under our blanket for too long. They've become inebriated because of that. We need to back out. We tried to do this way back when, at the end of the Cold War. We had a European security identity. We were going to form a separate brigade. It was going to not pull troops away from NATO. It was going to act internally if it needed to act in the European sphere, so to speak. NATO wouldn't act. It would act. We killed it. We killed it. We killed it because we wanted to maintain that political economic hegemony over Europe, particularly over Germany. Impossible. You can't do that. But John Mearsheimer is right. That's the second priority now, whether it's Germany or it's Finland or it's France or it's England, little England. That's second priority, maybe even third. The big kahuna is out there in East Asia. The big kahuna dwarfs them all. You even put the 740 European, 740 million Europeans together, throw the Russians in and get a little more. Their GDP is equal to ours, but they can't get their political act together. That behemoth out there in East Asia has got its political. And it's got basically the dictator in Xi Jinping. There's the threat. There's the problem. What are we doing? We're fooling around with the crap in Europe and the crap in the Middle East. I'm not calling it crap because it's not important. I'm saying that in terms of strategy, real strategy, we're focused on the wrong areas. Well, I don't want to get too sidetracked, but I do want to say that alternative for Deutschland, like they are an incredibly xenophobic party. And I think their success is largely explained by austerity politics, which have really unleashed horrible policies, particularly on East Germany, where people, a lot of people struggle to find jobs. And as a result of that, the sort of scapegoat has become this figure of, you know, the Muslim migrant that's going to come and, and rape all their women. And so they mobilize a lot of this anti-Islamic, uh, xenophobic rhetoric to also support Israel because they see, you know, a blanket support of Israel as serving their own interests well, and furthering... I didn't say I was in favor of them. I didn't say I was in favor of them. What I'm talking about is Germany has its problems too. And you see what's going to happen to Germany when a really tough winter hits and they're still buying that extraordinarily expensive Permian Permian Basin gas from the United States rather than that cheap and much greener gas from Russia. If that's still going on, we're going to see a Germany that says, for whatever reason, goodbye, I'm not in NATO anymore. And I'm not hooked up to you anymore, Washington. And that East German group might be a part of that in terms of bringing the politics about to do that. Yeah, there are a lot of alliances that are kind of unlikely at the moment. And I I do see what you mean, that a lot of these terrible policies are giving rise to more hateful right-wing parties because they're opposed to certain things in EU policy which are objectively bad. So a lot of these terrible EU policies. And we're also... We're also looking at, you know, the climate crisis eating us all 
eating our lunch, just taking us all down. And we're not moving nearly fast enough. Europe's moving a lot faster than we are. Uh, regardless of their problems, they're moving a lot faster than we are, whether it's hydrogen, wind power, experimentation in places like Finland and Norway on different types of energy. They are so much further down the road than we are. They're almost as far down the road as China is in selective areas. China's pretty much wiped everybody out in solar, including us. But that's, you know, no one's talking about that. That's the real crisis. That's the real crisis. I talk about China being a threat. I mean, come on. Maybe another 20 years, maybe another 30 years, then everybody's going to be worried about the water around their knees, the rain falling on their head incessantly, and the heat going up. I mean, it's there. It's coming. It's real. It's not fake. And we're doing relatively little except pontificating about it. Where did we hold the last comp? <laughs> in the fossil fuel kingdom of the earth. <laughs> and we got a statement out of that cop on fossil fuels that was generated by that individual. Instead of saying, no more fossil fuels, period. Everybody's got a deadline now. No more fossil fuels. No more burning fossil fuels. Pick out your, your, your hydrogen, nuclear, whatever the hell you're going to pick. Pick it and go after it. But no more fossil fuels. Uh-huh. No, we, we kind of caveat. Well, the guy's got a lot of money, and he's got a lot of oil, and he's going to sell it all. He doesn't want any stranded assets. He's going to sell it all. So is MBS. They're going to sell it all. They're going to burn it all before they go down. Yeah, it's almost like you can't distinguish between where the limits of big oil and gas ends and, and where some of the, the power of these countries and these governments begins. I mean, it seems like there's a, an overlap there between them. But I, I wanted to go back to the 1980s because I think there are some parallels there with what's going on in the Middle East right now. And the 80s, especially in the early 80s, were an incredibly volatile time in Israel as well as in Lebanon. And, you know, there were numerous attacks by Palestinian Liberation Organization militants on Israel. And in response to that, there was the operation codenamed um, Peace for Galilee, which started in 1982, where the Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin started bombarding um, Beirut for seven weeks straight. And there was this infamous phone call between U.S. President Ronald Reagan and Begin in which he said, you know, stop this bombardment. It's a Holocaust. And, you know, there's this awkward discussion there because Begging responded saying, don't tell me what a Holocaust is. I know what it is. But Reagan still was able to stop him from continuing the bombardment. And it's reported that he said to his secretary of state, Schultz, that, oh, I didn't know I actually had that power. So this sort of points to the power that is, I guess, you know, actualized or manifested within the presidency of the U.S., the United States president. And I mean, I feel like Biden can be doing so much more right now, but because of so many of the, the factors you discussed, he's not pressuring the Israelis to have some sort of ceasefire or at least humanitarian pauses. And I, I just wonder, what else do you think we could take from that particular example of Reagan? And I don't want to say that his policy in the Middle East was a great one. I mean, there were a lot of <laughs> A lot of wars which followed that. So I'm, I'm not, you know, characterizing him as some sort of model president, but it seemed like he put his foot down in that moment. He did. And there were a number of reasons for it. And I don't know if Schultz's comment is apocryphal or not. I studied Reagan extensively, taught him at William and Mary. And I agree with uh, Morris, his authorized biographer, who after two years of being with Reagan and Nancy and others, um, said he didn't know whether he was the brightest, most astute politician he'd ever met or a flaming idiot. It's very, it's very difficult to figure out who Ronald Reagan is. And that quip, uh, if it's true, um, might have been simply Reagan playing Schultz. That's the Reagan that Morris says is pretty, pretty smart. Reagan sold F-15s and AWACS to Saudi Arabia, um, bitterly opposed by Israel. And then H.W. Bush came along, and H.W. Bush used the war, the first Gulf War, as leverage to get them ultimately to Oslo. 
Um, he'd been their arms behind their back. Maybe we need a Republican. Oh, no. <laughs> anyway, the only presidents who seem to have stood up to Israel are Republicans. What are the circumstances of those situations, though? They're usually brought on by a really perfidious, desperate, in some respects, stupid Israel. Um, the invasion of Lebanon was such. Footnote. Why does Israel bomb all the economic facilities in Lebanon when it bombs Lebanon? Go back and look at any time it's bombed Lebanon, several times. Because it's the most potential competitor in the eastern Mediterranean for Israel's economy. So what you do is you go in and mow the grass in Lebanon. You take out industrial targets. You take out factories. You take out business. <laughs> that's part of Israel's motivation, too, which is hate us. But that's the way they do business. I don't think we're going to get a president who stands up to Israel in the kind of way you're insinuating. I don't use that term jargically. Um, until they do something so heinous that he has to. And they're about to, in my view. They're about to. And if Biden is not the president to do something in that circumstance, then God help us. Well, I think we should end on that note because... There's no amount of speculating that can reverse this really scary prediction. Um, so Larry Wilkerson, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. And thank you for watching TheAnalysis.News. If you'd like to support our work, you can do so by going to our website, TheAnalysis.News, and hitting the donate button at the top right corner of the screen. See you next time. <laughs>